from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Work and Life on Business Radio. Welcome to Work and Life. So glad you're here. It's our conversation in which we explore everything related to work and the rest of your life, your family, our community and society, and your private self, your mind, body, and spirit. I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I am the founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and of our leadership program at Wharton. And I run a management consulting and training company. It's called Total Leadership. You go to totalleadership.org. You can find out about our services that help people and organizations create greater harmony and improve performance in all parts of life. There's free book chapters, articles, videos, assessment tools, and more at totalleadership.org. New episodes of this show that you're listening to, they premiere on Thursdays at 5 p.m. Eastern here on Sirius XM channel 132. And you can follow us on Twitter at SXM Business, as well as me at Stu Friedman. Well, imagine a world in which all leaders feel and display a deep regard for others' dignity. Is that hard to imagine? Instead of commanding a rigid, autocratic, top-down and removed method of engaging their people, they instead forge consensus by meeting people where they are and believe in their dignity. Well, my guest today believes that this is possible, despite some evidence to the contrary in our world today. I am delighted to welcome Dr. Marilyn Gist, who's the author of The Extraordinary Power of Leader Humility, Thriving Organizations and Great Results. She is here on the show. Marilyn, welcome to Work and Life. Thank you, Stu. It's a delight to be here, and uh, I look forward to the conversation. I'm just so happy you invited me. Thank you. Well, I'm glad you made the time for us. Let me tell listeners a little bit about you before we get into the conversation. Marilyn Gist, she's a PhD and an expert on leader development. Her academic career includes uh, service at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, the University of Washington, where she held the Boeing Endowed Professorship of Business Management, and Seattle University, where she served as Associate Dean, Professor of Management, and Executive Director of the Center of Leadership Formation. She's got a BA from Howard University and an MBA and PhD from the, from the University of Maryland at College Park. All right, Marilyn, you've, you've written a wonderful new book on leader humility. Um, you know, I, like perhaps others, um, are definitely ready for some more humility in our leaders. Uh, and I think the world is really crying for that. First, before we talk about how to cultivate it um, in yourself and others, what do you mean by humility as it relates to leaders? Well, that's an interesting place to start because some people confuse it with this idea of meekness or weakness. And so they think it's inconsistent with leaders. You want leaders to be strong, decisive, uh, able to deal with uncertainty, take some risks. But I'm coming at humility from an, how it looks to the other person from an interaction standpoint. And so uh, really focusing on the angle in which humility is about showing regard for others' dignity or others' sense of self-worth. Mm -hmm. And that's uh, not inconsistent with being strong. You can still be strong and have high standards, uh, make the tough decisions, but do it in a way that supports other people's sense of self-worth. What is it that has motivated you to produce this book? A couple of things. One is, as you note, seeing lots of situations in our world where we are not going to be able to resolve very complex issues, whether that's climate change or uh, you could look at our, our national election and the situation we're in in the United States, uh, where we have people who have very differing views. And one way of going at that is to argue and fight and try to win. Another way of going at that is to try to pull people together, to work together on a consensus. And the complexity of uh, a number of issues we're facing and that I touch on 
uh, in the book is such that we really have to work together. Mm -hmm. And foundational to that is um, creating relationships that support working together by not stepping all over everyone's dignity. Well, why not just brag myself and muscle my way into the top so that I can control everything and then do everything I can to possibly subvert the idea of working together. Isn't that a way of, of also gaining power, influence, and control to make things the way I want them to be? If it I is play a way, devil's advocate here. It is, a, it is a way of gaining power. Uh, I think a question for us, too, is whether leadership equates to power or whether it involves a way in which we use power. So we think of leaders as people who have risen in some system, whether that's in business or in government. And as they have risen, they have a certain amount of power. And what I'm looking at really is how do we use that? And there are multiple ways of using it. Uh, And there's a fair amount of research that would suggest that when we work together, we get more done. Uh, You certainly might win in the short term by dominating and controlling, as you suggest. But what happens to the people who are losing out in that? Are they giving their best to you? Are they looking to continue to support you? Probably not. Mm, But what if I don't care about those people? Again, I'm playing devil's advocate. I understand. Uh, And you might not care. The question really is twofold. One is, uh, what's happening to the organization? Mm -hmm. Is that spilling over to other people who do care? Is it uh, leading them to give their best and work fully? Or are they just going through the motions and doing what they, they have to do? The other question is that, you know, none of us is here forever or in a job forever. And once we move on, the people who have been left behind or feel they were mistreated or not heard uh, will tend to want to rise up and, and gain voice at that point. And so it can often undo some of the very things you think you got accomplished during your tenure. Mm. It's it's, it's nice to think this way. And, you know, I'm, I'm in a cynical frame of mind this afternoon, I have to say, Marilyn. So I'm going to be pushing on this. And it's not just me. I, you know, I have conversations with lots of different folks who are across the spectrum uh, of, you know, people who are interested in, you know, building collaborative uh, work relationships and relationships in other parts of life, which is a big part of what I do with my own teaching and practice and research. And I, you know, I bump into this sort of resistance that I'm giving voice to here in my, in my questions, which you know, derive from notable examples of people who just don't care about the dignity of others and who still seem to have um, what, what some people view as a kind of success. I don't you know, adhere to that ideal but there are people out there who do. Uh, and so I'm, I'm wanting to, you know, well, just invite you to explore that, that other point of view and, and how, how the, the notion of humility is one that um, can sort of break through uh, the ideology of, you know, power at all costs and to heck with, you know, the dignity of those who are losers. Right. And I will probably not convince all of your listeners, uh, people who have a view that, you know, it doesn't matter and I don't care. Um, I don't think I can fully change that view, but I'll offer a couple of perspectives, one being research-based, the other being, uh, you know, maybe kind of a moral or ethical perspective. And, and, And to start with the latter, you know, people have certain assumptions about whether all people are valuable, whether all people have something uh, to contribute to an organization, or whether people have to be goaded and prodded and kicked and pushed in order to do what mm-hmm. we feel they need to do. Those are almost two uh, diametrically opposed perspectives on life. I come out of uh, one that says people have value Uh, I don't necessarily agree with everyone. I certainly don't agree with everyone, 
But I do believe that people need to be heard and that when you give people an opportunity to weigh in, to hear the disagreements among themselves, but challenge them to work collaboratively that you get better outcomes. Mm -hmm. Uh, From a research standpoint, you know, we go all the way back to uh, Jim Collins's work. I'm sure, you know, good to great in, you know, the early 2000s, I think 2001 was the copyright on that book. And then he developed this notion of uh, level five leadership a, a few years later. But what was fascinating is that he did a really robust comparative study looking at organizations uh, over a period of time and which ones had the greatest financial success, uh, which ones brought products to market that uh, seemed to have better acceptance and so forth. And what, uh, what he found was that surprisingly, the difference was really in leadership. And that the leaders who helped move their organizations into greatness were leaders who had two qualities, the drive, what he called fierce resolve, you know, they're committed to getting things done, uh, but also a personal humility. And while he uh, doesn't articulate it exactly the way I do, it was pretty clear to me in reviewing his work that that's what we were looking at. These were leaders who were not necessarily charismatic, mm-hmm. but they weren't command and control types. Mm-hmm. And yeah, some were introverts. Some were introverts, correct. And what happened was they really galvanized the, the whole team in the organization to give their best, to go above and beyond the call of duty. And when he talked with people inside the organization, they knew that these leaders were phenomenal, even though the leaders weren't taking up a lot of airtime <laughs> and, and wanting to be, you know, glorified and, uh, you know, almost, almost put on a pedestal. So because the leaders kept their own ego in check and really worked more to support the dignity of other people in the organization, the organizations uh, succeeded at a much greater level. So I think this gets to the notion of the whole being greater than the sum of the parts, and it takes leader humility to get that. Let me remind listeners, this is Work and Life on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I'm speaking today with Marilyn Gist who's the author of The Extraordinary Power of Leader Humility, Thriving Organizations, Great Results. We've also got a chapter by Alan Mulally, the former CEO of Ford Motor and of Boeing. Uh, it includes interviews with uh, a dozen really interesting um, array of CEOs talking about how they develop humility, why it's important for them, and uh, is a source of uh, some of the ideas that Dr. Just is writing about in this book. Um, you know, there's 70 million people who voted for a guy who is the antithesis of what it is that you are describing here, right? And that's kind of disturbing, especially when you think about this notion of our need to work together, which is perhaps our most profound need uh, at this time as a society, is is healing the, the divisions that, that, uh, that increasingly uh, separate us and keep us from collaborating toward creating a better future for ourselves and our children. Um, what's your take on that? Because it, it sort of runs counter to the Collins and many others, including yourself, wisdom that we need to collaborate, we need to work together. I and mean, that requires, of course, that there's a commitment to the common wheel, to the common good. Correct. Not there in, in half the populace. It's not there. So I think you are, you are right. There are 70 plus million people who voted for uh, our president who does not display uh, leader humility in the way we're talking about it. Um, and, and you indicated you are disturbed about that because we, we need to work together. I would, I would tend to agree. I would say uh, it, it appears that he lost that election because closer to 80 million people voted against that mm-hmm. style. And mm-hmm. we have 306 electoral college votes voting for leader humility, uh, if you mm-hmm. want to think of it that way. All right. I'll, the, the I'll take some reassurance in that, although I'll, I'll feel better about it once uh, there's once an inauguration. 
Right, I agree. But the point is that we we have a very divided country, although our, our although our sitting president still has a very very strong following, he has gotten that by creating a style that says it's my way or the highway, and anybody who doesn't believe in what I what I'm doing or doesn't follow me is my enemy. Mm-hmm. And the result of that is you've got. Uh, an even larger group, whether you want to look at popular vote, electoral college vote, who say, no, you're, you're not representing me. And I think what we need is somebody who can pull us together. And as you say, that means focusing on the fact that this is supposedly a United States, not a divided States. It's one country, different voices, one out of many. And when we've had presidents that have focused on that, we've had a you know, certainly always going to have policy differences, but we've had a, um, a much more uh, collaborative kind of culture. People are, are willing to pull together for the common good. And I think we've got to get back to that. Yeah, well, let's, let's work toward that as we must. Uh, there is some hope, maybe uh, six or 12 months from now, you can come back and we can do a further assessment of this. But for now, uh, let's, let's get down to... Uh, the level at which more uh, many of our listeners can can make this operational these these ideas in their own lives, and to develop the capacity a greater capacity for humility in their own leadership challenges wherever they might be, whether in some sort of organizational hierarchy or not. You know, I like to think of leadership as the capacity to mobilize people toward valued goals, which doesn't necessarily require that you be in a hierarchical relationship with those people. Uh, that you're trying to inspire to get to a better tomorrow. How do you go about increasing your capacity for leadership in terms of being uh, one who is truly humble? And I ask that, especially in light of, you know, the, the quotes from the dozen or so people in your book when asked about, you know, the origins of their humility, virtually all of them talked about their childhood, right? So if it, if it's if it's back then that you that you are learning this essential quality, how as adults can we uh, can we change and to grow into more humble leaders? Good question, and something that uh, probably both you and I have engaged in and working uh, in our own leadership centers over the years. I've been motivated to write the book in part because I have seen the capacity to actually teach this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and before I maybe talk about some methodologies, I'll, I'll say, you know, by, by defining humility as feeling and displaying uh, deep regard for others' dignity, mm-hmm. it almost places it in a behavioral, uh, interpersonal kind of um, domain. And so that means it's a set of skills that can be taught, uh, mm-hmm. even if you didn't have that upbringing as a child once you understand the concept that every human being, every human being has and needs a sense of self-worth, then you understand that as a leader, almost by definition, having some power to influence, if you support others' dignity, if you go with that rather than against it, you're going to get greater support. People are going to feel more comfortable working with you Mm -hmm. and they're going to be more readily influenced than if you violate their dignity and uh, turn them away. Mm -hmm. So when we think about the skills, I come at it, you know, as you know, in the book through three questions that all of us have when we look at leaders, you know, when we, when we get a new boss, a new president, uh, we see someone in the organization for the first time that we didn't know. And it's kind of, who are you as a person? Where, where are we going? What kind of direction are you setting? And then do you see me? Do you see me as a human being with my own wants and needs? Or am I just a, a cog in the wheel, some sort of a transaction in your mind? And then within each of those areas, there certainly are things that leaders do and say. Let me jump in here, though, and ask you, uh, before we dig into those three wonderfully succinct uh, questions uh, as a way to frame what what it is that we look for in leaders, how did you derive those? Where did those come from? 
For me, they came through years of working with executive audiences who come in the door with their own stories, not only their stories of how they lead, but the companies they work for, the, the CEOs they work for, other people on the leadership team. Uh, and, and as you certainly probably have, I have heard just hundreds and hundreds of stories over time. And it really became clear to me that those are the three buckets that people pay attention to. They want to know who are you, they want to know where you're trying to get us to go, and they want to know whether they matter. Um, and depending on the day and the situation, one of those questions may be more important than the other, but mm -hmm. all of us are thinking that about leaders. Mm -hmm. uh, some people may be less sensitive to the who are you piece. Uh, they may be more comfortable with a leader who is focused on getting to certain goals and it doesn't, you know, the means justifies the end. I don't care if you do it legally or ethically, just do it. Uh, but I, you know, maybe I'm a little naive, Stu, but I like to think that most people still have a moral core. And for those individuals, uh, the leader's character does matter. That's the who are you, Bruce? That's the who are you piece. So when, we, when, you, when you speak to the question of who are you, you mean uh, what exactly? Their values? Your character. Uh, there are two dimensions of that that are um, of major importance for leaders. One being ego, the balanced ego, as opposed to being too meek or too arrogant. We, we want leaders to be confident, but we don't want them to be so arrogant that they don't see us. Uh, and then the other is integrity. Um, do you walk the talk? Can I trust you? Uh, are, are, you know, that type of thing is just very important. All right, so please continue then in, in the next layer of um, description of these three questions that we ask of, of our of our leaders. And then when we come back, we're gonna break in in just a couple of minutes. Uh, I'm gonna ask you about how to develop these qualities. So sure. with respect to who are you, it's a, you know, do you have uh, the right balance of arrogance and- It's and, ego, ego balance. So avoiding arrogance and avoiding meekness. So meekness. Right. Um, and having a sense of integrity. Do you- Correct. Do what you say. Right. Um, so with respect to where are we going and do you see me, what are, the, what are the essential elements, the skills really, of those two questions as they come to life? So with uh, where are we going, it boils down to compelling vision and ethical strategies. And uh, I've been influenced by Alan Mulally, uh, whom, as you mentioned, wrote a chapter in the book, and I've worked with him for about five or six years uh, and he has a, a perspective on compelling vision, you know, in his work, both at Boeing and Ford, he created what he calls the one plan, mm -hmm. um, working with people to develop one plan that we're all focused on and we're all executing. And what's interesting is that Alan doesn't consider it compelling unless there is profitable growth for all in his view. So part of the magic and how he was able to get unions uh, to help him turn around Ford Motor Company, uh, dealers, uh, he really worked with all stakeholder groups, very, very broad groups of people who you would think have competing interests or conflicting interests. And yet he was able to galvanize them around this notion of one plan uh, because the plan itself was going to help all of them gain, uh, and it was anchored in leader humility, his his own style. Mm -hmm. So, and getting there in a way that uh, is ethical, and we can ethical, further right. how, to, how that plays out and how right. these, these qualities can indeed be learned. Do you see me? It, we, we just have another minute here in this first part of our conversation. How would you characterize the, the two key elements of what it means to be a leader who sees people? Uh, generous inclusion. And we hear a lot about inclusion in the diversity, equity, inclusion arena, but I'm not talking specifically about that. It's about understanding who all of your stakeholders are and drawing the boundary of your activity broadly enough that everybody is on the inside, not outside. 
and then involving each of those stakeholder groups in the important conversations at the right time and listening. It doesn't mean you always agree with their suggestions, but you engage them and listen to them. So the generous inclusion is one piece and then developmental focus, uh, caring about where it is that people wanna go, where do your stakeholders wanna go or your employees and really showing uh, that you're interested in the long game with them. You're interested in helping out where you can uh, with their interests and not just in being transactional of, you know, okay, I'm paying you for a job, just do it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, Marilyn, we're going to have to take a short break here. Uh, so let me just ask you to sit tight for a sec and we'll be right back. I'm going to be continuing my conversation with Marilyn Gist. Stay with us, folks. I am Stu Friedman. This is Work and Life on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. When we come back, we'll look into what can you do now to become a leader who demonstrates greater humility and why that's a good thing for you to focus on these days. See you in a bit. You're listening to Work and Life on Business Radio. Welcome back to Work and Life. So glad you're here. I am Stu Friedman. I'm founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and of our leadership program. And I run an organization that's called Total Leadership. And you can find out all about what we do by going to totalleadership.org. My guest today, I'm happy to say, is Marilyn Gist, who is the author of a wonderful new book, very timely, really timely. It's called The Extraordinary Power of Leader Humility. Thriving organizations, great results. Um, she is an expert on leader development, has uh, been a professor at, you know, at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, University of Washington, Washington and Seattle University. Marilyn, let's continue uh, going a little further now on what it, what it is that's possible for people to, well, to learn, to become more more humble. You know, it's the kind of thing that it would seem is something that you have to have learned when you were a kid, uh, you know, from whatever social forces were impinging upon you, like your parents or whomever as you were growing up. But uh, you've shown that, that there are methods for people to learn uh, to become uh, leaders who demonstrate humility. What's, what's the hardest part uh, that people Base in in trying to do that? Well, you know, I think we are all products of our experience at, you know, any point in time. So today, uh, all of us have come to today from a collective of life experiences. And some of us did have that early development, whether it's from family or faith or, you know, the social context of, you know, growing up in the Midwest, for example. Uh, that have taught us some things about how we interact with people. Others have learned different experiences. So one of the first things I I have found is it's important to have a certain level of self-awareness. And when we have that and we realize we all have limits, but we've maybe got this uh, opportunity to grow. And if there's openness to growth, then the first thing is to really help people understand this notion of dignity. And that every human being has and needs a sense of self-worth. And so if you uh, recognize that, it's almost kind of a soft underbelly that we all have. No matter how tough someone looks on the outside, uh, underneath it, they they are trying to maintain that sense of self-worth. And if you approach the interaction when you're in a leadership role that this is a person whose self-worth matters, then it begins to shape the whole conversation and set of actions you have with them. So Mm -hmm. people who can begin to understand that conceptually, even if they didn't get it growing up, uh, can make that shift and they make it very quickly. I've seen that coaching executives. Well, let's talk about that because what is it that motivates someone to pivot on something that's really fundamental to how they have viewed the world historically? So I, I can give a couple of examples. One, a situation where I was brought in to coach an executive who was, you know, creating so many problems with people in the organization that he had 
been told by the CEO he either needed to change or he would be terminated. Mm. So he obviously had some motivation to grow. And I was brought in as a resource to help him. And mm-hmm. it was interesting because it was a very quick shift once I was able to help him understand this concept of dignity, what he was doing, and how it was really working against him. It mm. became very quick for him to shift. So in his really? case, in his case, for example, it was about balanced ego more than anything else. He, he had the integrity piece, the direction piece, uh, but, you know, maybe not uh, ego and, and developmental focus. And he's someone who bragged a lot, uh, always talked about himself, his family, his achievements. And it was to such an extreme that employees and peers would just pull away. They just didn't want anything yeah. to, to do with him because they'd heard it all before. And when I was talking with him, he said, well, I'm proud of my family. I'm proud of, you know, what I've done. What's wrong with talking about that? And yeah, like, what's wrong with that? What's wrong I'm, with I'm that? I'm a great guy. People should know it. People should know it. And it really wasn't hard to help him see that, well, other people are proud of their family, too. And mm-hmm. you have the power. So when you start the conversation, they're not going to argue with you. But if you come in and instead of focusing on you, you focus on them, you ask about their weekend and you do it genuinely. You make time to get to know the names of their kids and so forth. It creates a very different dynamic. And I'll never forget the conversation yeah, but- that he sat there and he went, oh, mm-hmm. like he had just never considered it before and and really began to shift his behavior. And it, it changed very quickly. So there was a, an epiphany there that enabled yes. this person to see the world differently you know, the, the pushback I often get is, uh, you know, to, to the work that I, that I do in helping people to create better harmony among the different parts of their lives for greater success in all the different parts is, uh, oh, come on, Stu, I know a lot of people who are, uh, you know, they sacrifice everything, they don't really care about the other parts of their lives, the only thing that matters is their business success, and I expect you, you get a lot of that as well, uh, I know I know a lot of people who are very successful, uh, you know, despite the fact that they don't really demonstrate uh, humility and, and a respect for the dignity of, of other people. So, do you encounter that as I ex- expect you to? And if so, yeah. how do you how do you address it? Uh, so there's a couple of angles to that question. I'm not sure what you mean. There definitely are people who don't care about the dignity of others and who have been successful in some right. way. So when you, so you're, are you asking how I change that or? Uh, thank you for clarifying. You know, what I'm, what I'm after is how you address you know, people in your executive education programs, for example, who say, you know, this sounds great, but I know people who, are you know belligerent bullies who are running companies or running divisions of major companies, and you know they seem to be doing just fine. Um, why do I need to try to change you know an aspect of myself that has you know been a source of some success for me? So th- there's there's two reasons, good reasons for changing. Uh, depending on where someone's orientation is, they'll prioritize these differently. But one would be business success. Mm-hmm. That the evidence does suggest that uh, a leadership style that rests in humility is going to give you better results. So you might be thinking, well, I'm already successful. The question I would ask you is what's the opportunity cost? It may be hard for you to see what you're not gaining, what you're not delivering mm-hmm. because you have success at a certain level. And I'm going to suggest you could have much more success with this approach because mm-hmm. the research suggests that. All right, I'm listening. Pardon? All right, I'm listening. You're listening, okay. Is, is, what, someone, just... is what somebody might say if you, pre- I mean, that was, that's persuasive because you're appealing to their, their interest in, in greater achievement. In greater achievement, it's opportunity cost. So that could translate into money. It could mm-hmm. translate into further advancement in an organization or, or dollars if you're a private businessman or whatever. Mm-hmm. The second is really a, a more human one, which appeals to some people, which is if you understand that others' dignity matters and you care, 
maybe you, like this executive I described, are not aware of the ways in which you've been violating others' dignity. And we have a lot of that, Stu, in organizations. Mm -hmm. There are many, many, many uh, examples, whether we're looking at, say, issues like uh, unfair hiring practices, issues of sexual harassment. I mean, just lots of ways in which people in leadership roles use their power uh, and do so in ways that violate the dignity of others. And not only is there an opportunity cost for doing that, there's a human cost. There are people who are hurt or, um, you know, damaged in the process. And if you don't want to be part of that, if you want to be on the side of goodness and light and human growth, then that would be another reason to learn this. And, and that is uh, a compelling, you know, appeal. And it, uh, you know, the, 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 the difficulty I often encounter and the paradox, I think, is that because of the privilege that many people in our society have, they don't see just as your, you know, the example of your client earlier, of, you know, hey, I'm proud of my family. Why shouldn't I be bragging about them? He didn't see until you helped him to see how that affected other people. He was blind, he was perhaps blind. not even, you know, malintent, but uh, just unable to see. And that's why I, I love the way you capture in that very simple question, do they see me? Because yes. he do you see me. Yes. I think that that that's so important. So what's your favorite exercise or intervention to help people understand how they can increase their capacity to truly see others? Well, the, the book has a lot of do's and don'ts uh -huh. around each of these uh, six keys to leader humility, as I call them. And then uh, each chapter, of course, has a set of uh, questions and exercises to help develop uh, people. I think on the do you see me piece, uh, the, the favorite one I like is to really get people to wrap their minds around generous inclusion because we have a tendency to think of who's on my team and who's not. Okay, here's my goal. And I've got this set of employees, maybe who are gonna work with me on this goal. And maybe I'm trying to win out over uh, a peer, maybe somebody in another department who's, uh, whose goal and direction is gonna take some resources away from me. Mm -hmm. maybe it's a particular uh, client or vendor or uh, maybe it's the regulators or whatever. And so one of the things I have people do is to begin to break down who are all your stakeholders. Mm -hmm. And a stakeholder is anybody who has a vote in what you're doing. It could be a vendor because they could go sell to someone else. In many cases, a customer can buy from someone else, employees, of course, your peers in your organization and on and on. But to really sit down and think through who are all of my stakeholders and am I including them when I'm making decisions or have I made a decision in advance that I have to exclude some, decide how I'm going to run things and then either force it on them or try to sell them on it, uh, which is almost always going to run into problems. Mm -hmm. So beginning to get people to identify stakeholder groups and then draw a boundary that's broad enough that engages each group in the conversation mm -hmm. uh, takes more time, but yields better implementation. Much mm -hmm. Because people feel like they're part of your future. They feel track. like they're and part they of it because, because you also end up with a, a one plan, figuratively speaking, that represents everybody or mm -hmm. represents the interests of everyone. It doesn't mean it'll optimize everybody's interests, mm -hmm. but at least they're in the game. They have some reason to want to play along because they see a piece of themselves in there. Mm -hmm. Folks, you're listening to Work and Life. We're on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I'm so glad you're with us. I am speaking with Marilyn Gist, who's the author of The Extraordinary Power of Leader Humility, Thriving Organizations, Great Results. Such a timely and important book. Uh, I wonder if we can turn, Marilyn, to how the development of 
greater humility as a leader uh, in your work life, how it affects other parts of your life. Is that a question that you uh, have explored in your uh, studies and in your work with, uh, with leaders and organizations? I would say that uh, humility is a foundation for all healthy relationships. When you think about relationship, it involves more than me. It involves you or some group of people. And when I define it as feeling and displaying regard for others' dignity, others' self-worth, how could we possibly have healthy relationships if I don't do that? Mm-hmm. If I don't care about your sense of self-worth, it's not going to be a healthy relationship. The dance between my humility and your dignity uh, is a powerful one. And, and think of it as you know, a ballroom dance uh, kind of thing where you've got partners. If I'm stepping all over your feet, it's not going to be a very comfortable or elegant dance. If I understand that you have, in this case, feet, <laughs> uh, self-worth, and I, and I flow with that, it's much more elegant. So I could still have strong standards. I could still say, this is what we need to accomplish. And I want everybody on board with that. Uh, but I could do it in a way that supports your dignity. So that's at work. But the same thing happens at home. It happens in friends uh, situations. It happens uh, in families, communities. Uh, we have a lot of, you know, in this country, for example, a lot of need to pull people together. That's for sure. Which gets back to, do we, do we honor and support the dignity of everyone? And we need some norms for how we talk with each other uh, in order to even begin to address some of the differences that we have. Mm-hmm. But the same type of thing happens in families. Mm-hmm. Um, if you have a command and control parent, especially when the child reaches uh, a moderate level of independence, teenage years, for example, you're going to have a, a, a difficult relationship. If, if the parent um, can recognize the, the need for self-worth in that child and begin to work with that, the relationship is still going to go through its teenage years, but it probably will be a little smoother um, and possibly lead to better outcomes than if, if it's fractured. Mm-hmm. That is for sure. Uh, and so it's, it's, uh, it's easy to see how lessons in humility can be transferred uh, to other parts of life. My hunch, now you know this literature uh, better than I do, Marilyn, my hunch is that uh, women are better at this than men, generally speaking. Is that your observation? You know, I haven't studied that. That that that's a fair hunch. Um, I have certainly met women who lack humility, uh, and I have met men who have it. Um, of course, of course. In the interviews that I did, uh, mm-hmm. those are good examples. And I and I certainly know women who don't have it. Mm-hmm. Is it more common to find women who have it? Possibly. I think women are just socialized to yeah. consider others um, right. much more. They're socialized to have more of a relationship orientation. So maybe intuitively they understand it um, more often. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that yeah. would make sense. Yeah, I was attributing that to socialization. Um, but you also see, you know, back to looking at the world stage uh, across the Across the globe, some of the you know leaders who stand out these days, Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand, uh, one powerful example is of someone who really seems to get what you are uh, preaching yes. and teaching in in leader humility and, and how successful she's been. Yes. Uh, now that's a small island country, you know, compared to our great and varied United States. So so that raises for me a question. Um, about, um, you know, diversity of you know, the kinds of people in your organization. It seemed to me easier uh, to, to develop and enact a, a, a humble approach to leadership if uh, the people in your organization are all like you. It is, is probably easier. I think a challenge for all of us is to deal across differences. Mm-hmm. And it's a skill we all need to develop. 
because in fact, it's a very diverse world. As you said, it's a diverse country, a diverse world. And I don't, uh, I don't see that dialing back and changing. And so our, our need and our opportunity is to grow in a way that we can, we can talk with each other across differences. And again, it goes back to showing respect for other self-worth and separating the value I place on you as a human being from whether or not I agree with you on this specific idea we're talking about. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yes, we can argue about ideas. Yes. Uh, just so long as we continue to understand and respect the dignity of us all. That's the, that's the big idea. Do I have, right? Absolutely. So there are probably people listening right now who are thinking, I need to do more of that. How do I get started? What would you tell them? I would suggest uh, that they think about uh, where their strengths and where their weaknesses are on these six dimensions, these six keys of leadership that I talk about in the book. Uh, I have a short uh, self-test on my website. You can score it yourself. Uh, it's just a quick little diagnostic that gives you a sense of where you might uh, want to focus in. And then, you know, there are some activities in the book that can help people develop in one specific key or two, if that's where they need help. Mm -hmm. In general, though, I think um, beginning to get the big idea, which is there's no relationship, whether leadership, family, friends, wherever, where I can really get away with violating your dignity big time. Mm -hmm. I mean, none of us is perfect. We all say some things that are insensitive. Uh, you know, we, we all do things over our lives that, you know, we look back on, hopefully we look back on and say, wow, you know, that wasn't, that wasn't my best self. I, I could have done that better. That hurt some people. All the time. All the time. So it's not really about perfection. And I think as humans, we, we probably, if we've lived long enough, don't expect perfection out of other people, but we're talking tendencies is this someone who tends to honor your dignity? Um, when I've been in leadership roles, you know, I, I often felt like I go home and, you know, you do the debrief on the 12 things you could have done better that day. But occasionally what comes out of that is, you know, that was a really insensitive way I handled something or a comment that I made. Do you, do you pick up the next day with a, can I speak to you a minute? I just want to apologize. I felt yeah. like I, uh, I really stepped over a line when I said thus and so or whatever. And I have done that any number of times and been surprised that it's not seen as a weakness. Mm -hmm. It's seen as a strength. I actually had an employee say to me once, you're the first boss I've ever had who apologized. Mm -hmm. Wow. That takes courage. Mm -hmm. Yes, it does. Uh, so thinking yes. about, are you grateful? Do you show that gratitude for people when they go above and beyond the call of duty? Do you, you know, simple things, the please and thank you, and I'm sorry. Those are all elements of showing humility with people, you know, when you're in a work context, just as, just as when you're home. It's so easy to forget. Yeah to do that in the hurly-burly of everyday life and the, the pressures that you feel to get things done from all Absolutely. the different directions. Absolutely. And it does, it does require a kind of commitment and, and discipline. Discipline. To uh, love. Yes, it I does. Say. And I, I would, uh, again, echo Malali, who says we use the word love in much too narrow a context. Mm -hmm. much too limited a way. We really need to think of human beings uh, in a larger sense and extend love to them as we work with them, uh, live with them in families, in community, um, you know, recognizing the merits of other people, even if they are very different. And then looking at how can we work together across the differences for some larger good. That's a fine note for us to close on. Marilyn, just thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Where, what's, uh, what's the best place for listeners to learn more about your work? Uh, they can jump on my website at marilyngist.com. That's M-A-R-I-L-Y-N-G-I-S-T.com. 
uh, and there's some information on there. There's also a sign up. There's uh, a lot of past blog posts. So um, just about any basic information they want, as well as a, an email address to reach out if they would like to do that. All right. MarilynGist.com. Yes. Is the place to go. And people can find the self-assessment tool there, obviously, and, and yes. get, it, uh, get results there for free. Yes, absolutely. Awesome. Uh, Marilyn Gist, author of The Extraordinary Power of Leader Humility, Thriving Organizations and Great Results. Thank you so much for joining me today. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Stu. It's been wonderful to talk with you. All right. Well, thanks. And thanks to you for listening. Please do not forget to join us next week, 5 p.m. Eastern. If you have a question about something that you heard on today's show or a comment, maybe you were annoyed at something I said, perhaps I was acting in a way not so humble. That does happen, I must admit. Uh, you can email me. It's friedman at wharton.upenn.edu. You can also email our station, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can also follow our show on Twitter at SXMBusiness. I am at Stu Friedman, and you can find edited versions of uh, our shows as free podcasts at totalleadership.org. There's also all kinds of free resources there, videos, book chapters, articles, uh, self-assessment tools, and more, and information about how our company helps people create harmony and greater performance in all parts of life. Thanks to our producer, Patty Hall, our sound engineer, Chris Tooks. Thank you for making the show happen. Most of all, thanks to you for listening. I am Stu Friedman. It's Work and Life on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 132.